welcome back my fellow peanuts and welcome to anyone who's new to the channel or to this podcast. Now this podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for young listeners and there may be graphic and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody and welcome back to Crimes from the Peanut Gallery. I hope everyone had a fabulous and lovely holiday season and a giant happy new year to everybody. A nice welcome to 2024 with this podcast. Uh, so today's state we're going to be talking about is Connecticut and our serial killer is going to be Michael Bruce Ross. Now after he was captured he was actually given the nickname of the roadside strangler. Uh, if you read anything before he'd been captured there was no nicknames there was nothing so it's really funny that he actually got given a nickname after he'd been captured. Now a fun fact about this serial killer is that he'd be the first and only execution in 2005 in the state of Connecticut. He'd also be the last. Now, he confessed to murdering eight women between 1981 and 1984. He'd raped seven of these victims, but I'm already skipping to the end, so I'd really like to start us from the beginning. Now, Michael Bruce Ross was born on July 26, 1959 to Daniel and Patricia Ross. Unfortunately, this marriage was really doomed from the beginning and it was plagued with a plethora of problems. Now, Patricia and Daniel, they were dating in high school, they'd unexpectedly become pregnant and they'd be forced to marry during these times. Um, it's really telling of the times in which they lived in that they'd be forced to marry, right? Because it would be almost unheard of in today's day and age that you would have to marry because you got pregnant. Now, certainly in certain areas and certain parts of the world, that's definitely the way it would go. But at this time, it really wasn't frowned upon that children who got pregnant at the age of 17 that they would marry. But the couple being kids themselves, they really struggled with this decision being taken away from them. So rather than marrying for love, they would marry because realistically, just of a careless decision. An article that I read would specifically say that Pat wanted no part of the marriage or being the wife of a chicken farmer in Brooklyn, Connecticut. I'm guessing that she had very little choice in the matter and she really despised the farm life. Michael was the first of four children during this fateful marriage. He had two younger sisters and one younger brother. Uh, there's not a whole lot of information available about his childhood or his siblings, uh, just in reference to what they did and all that kind of stuff. Um, however, what there is, it's once again, not a great childhood. I do want to be really, really clear. I'm not giving anyone an excuse to what they've done and their actions just because of their really crappy childhoods. Um, it's just really, really common, it seems, in these podcast that I'm doing about true crime and serial killers, that it's really, it's not the greatest of childhoods for these kids. They're not given the opportunity to, you know, have a different path or anything like that. So this is more to just give you an idea of why they became, what, why they became serial killers in the first place. And also just to give you a bit of background. Now the four children, they'd be born over a period of five years. Now, there are claims that during Michael's childhood that his mum would leave them, would leave the family for another man, but she would eventually return. Now, his mum in particular, she would have many psychological issues and problems. She was mentally and physically abusive to all of her children, but Michael seemed to be the one that endured the most, according to his sister. Like, she saved up all of her anger specifically for Michael. And half a dozen articles allude to the fact that his mum was unstable and violent. Um, and this would actually lead to her being institutionalised. 
Now, I can't confirm that as a fact in itself, but I did also read that his father would eventually become the primary guardian of the children. And just some of the other traumas that Michael would experience would be that when he was about eight years old, he would be ordered to strangle the weakest chickens on the farm. However, I've got some of the same articles also alluding to the fact that he did this on his own. Animal cruelty and that animal harming sort of started quite young. So I think it was probably a little bit of both. Now, there is a mention that his father beat him, though I'm really not sure if that's in truth itself because Michael and his father do claim that they had a really good relationship. Now, it certainly showed on, you know, when he would work on the farm and all that kind of stuff, he was with his dad a fair bit. So I'm just not sure if that's actually an accurate article regarding that specifically. Now, there are also claims that Michael was sexually assaulted by an uncle that used to babysit him, but this uncle would commit suicide and other family members have certainly spoken on this and said that it happened. Now, what I would like to point out the most about this is there's so much trauma around the way his mum would treat him and those... When we see that kind of behaviour, we do see a really common trait that men become quite hateful and violent towards women as a result of the way their mother had treated them. But you add on top of that that his uncle apparently or allegedly sexually assaulted him. All of this in the first 10 years of his life, he's not really at this stage destined for a really great life. Just there's a lot going on for a little boy. So... I'm not sure he stood a chance in the world with this kind of with this kind of beginning but despite all of those circumstances uh, he would really excel in school and he had a recorded IQ of 122. Now I'm not really surprised he did well in school because maybe that would give him an opportunity to escape this home life that he so desperately needed to be away from and he would attend Killingly High School and during that time he would also work part-time on the family farm. He would take a really keen interest in animals and he genuinely loved working on the farm. He had really big hopes of owning his own farm one day. He was incredibly bright. He would attend the Cornell University and he would study agricultural economics. That's really fitting for someone who would want to own and run their own farm one day. Now, during his time at Cornell, he was really social. He was softly spoken. He was self-deprecating. And at times he was actually really described as quite funny. Now, he belonged to a fraternity and he would also belong to a club called the Future Farmers of America. He would even date several girls or women uh, during his time at college. Now, he would even be engaged to one of those women specifically. Now, this relationship would end with a pregnancy and an abortion. Now, I'm wondering if this culminating on top of everything else is where we're going to start seeing that hatred for women. Now, I do have some information that while Michael would dream of having a family and a farm, There were other thoughts that were already starting to plague him. And these were violent and sadistic sexual fantasies. Now, a spiral begun and a descent into a really violent and ugly future was was becoming. Now, these fantasies were the start of his spiral. Now, in his sophomore year at Cornell, now for anyone who's not American, your sophomore year is your second year. And in this year specifically, he would begin to stalk women. Those fantasies and those urges would eventually take over and he would cross the line from a voyeur or a stalker 
to a rapist. Now, he would start to rape the women that he stalked, but he wouldn't be caught, at least for over the next couple of years. Now, I'm just going to briefly touch on the fact that this is really quite common. We do see a pattern when there is sexual assault or rapes at colleges that they do go unreported. Um, whether it be a Ivy League university or whether it be a smaller university, there is a plague in regards to sexual assault and not reporting it. I don't know the statistics, and I, but I've certainly watched a lot of documentaries on this kind of stuff, but it is a real plague that it's not reported. And if it is reported, it's not taken to the police. It's dealt with inside and inside the university. So I do understand why he possibly wasn't caught during this time because maybe they weren't reported. But in September 1981, uh, shortly after he graduated, he'd end up being arrested for assault. So while he was working, uh, there's multiple accounts on what he was actually doing for a job. It was, it's been reported that he was working for a, as a management trainee. It's also been reported that he was on a, uh, working on an egg farm. Either way, he was actually in Illinois at the time. Now, he could kidnap a 16-year-old girl. He dragged her screaming into the woods and he bound and gagged her with his own handkerchief and belt. Now, thankfully, the police arrived in time before anything worse could happen and not saying the, the worst hadn't already happened, but anything further like sexual assault or rape. Now, he would be arrested for unlawful restraint and he'd be fined $500 and he would be put on probation. It's not unheard of again that for your first first offence that you would be put on probation, but being that this was quite um, violent, I would have thought there would have been a little bit more of a consequence. But then again, I, I don't know enough about the law to understand um, why further... Hmm further requirements, um, sorry, not further requirements, further consequences. Um, but we definitely, we're never going to really know, are we? So unfortunately, the police would have no idea that the, a man, that the man that they had just arrested and let go was already a rapist and a murderer. Now, in May of the same year, so 1981, Zung Gok Tu, 25, uh, she'd been discovered in a gorge in Ithaca, New York, now, for some reason, the police would originally think that this death was a suicide. Now, they'd obviously, they would eventually realise that she'd been the victim of a brutal rape and murder. So his violent tendencies had already turned deadly. Now, she would be known and believed as the first victim. She was uh, at Cornell University as well. She was studying economics and she was of Vietnamese origin. Now, he would never be convicted of her murder, but he would confess to it. He would admit to strangling and raping her, and then he would admit to dumping her body in the gorge. But before I continue the next murders, I usually get a fair amount of information about the victims and the murders, but there isn't really too much information um, in regards to about the victims this time round. There's a little bit about the murders, but there's not necessarily a whole lot of information but what information I have um, been able to accumulate um, we're going to discuss that at the end because I want the victims to be heard um, and I don't think knowing all the details of the murder is always a bad thing so at the end of this podcast we're going to find out what I did we're going to find out what I was able to find out about those victims so after Michael had murdered Zung he'd attempt suicide 
Um, but his words were specifically he was too chicken to do it. Now, it has been said uh, that he would try and convince himself not to hurt anyone else. However, his sick fantasies had really taken control. Now, he was already on a path to a murderous rampage. So on July, uh, sorry, January 5th, 1982, Michael would abduct a 17-year-old by the name of Tammy Williams. Now, she'd go missing after walking home from her boyfriend's house in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Now, she would be found later raped and strangled, not too far from where she'd actually been seen the last time where she'd last been seen. Now, he wouldn't even be on the radar of the police at this stage, which is actually going to lead us to our next murder, uh, and she would be Paula Pereira. Now, I was able to get a little bit more information about Paula, which is really nice. I do like to talk about the victims as it allows us to really put a face to them and to know who they were. And they, honestly, they deserve a voice and they deserve to be heard. Now, 16-year-old Paula, she was hard not to like. She was bubbly. She was confident. She was someone really well liked at school. She had a group of friends at school that were like thick as these. She really loved to read. And she was also active in her local church group. Now, she never really complained, uh, even though she suffered from a really unhappy childhood and home life. But her home life would manage to get the better of her in 1981. She would actually attempt suicide. And because of this, the kids on the school bus, they would nickname her Paula Tylenol. Now, kids can be really, really cruel. And I can understand why, rather than letting it get to her and continuing to hear those jabs, she'd actually hitchhike her way to school instead. Now, this would prove to unfortunately be a fatal error and it would be disastrous because on March 1st, 1982, she would hitchhike for the last time. Uh, she'd get a ride from a recent Cornell graduate by the name of Michael Ross. Her body would be found 18 days later and she would also be raped and strangled. Now, she was just tossed off an area of Route 11 in Wallkill, New York. Now, they would the police would attempt to find her killer, but this murder would remain unsolved for almost two decades. Now, a month later uh, in April, He'd be at it again, but this time he'd be at it in Croton, Iowa. Now, he'd found work on an egg farm. He would use the ruse of needing a flashlight when he would knock on the door of an off-duty policewoman. He told her that his car had broken down and then he'd leave for a brief period of time. Now, he'd come back to that house and return the flashlight, but he'd also say to her, hey, can I use your telephone? Now, he would wait until her guard was down and he'd attempt to choke her. And I have no doubt that the plan was going to follow along the lines of the other victims that had already endured a raping and a strangulation. But she managed to fight back and get away from him. But soon afterwards, she'd call her colleagues and would be able to provide a fairly accurate description. Michael was so confident that he would be able to overpower her that he'd even given his name, his real name, and where he worked while he was talking to her and trying to get her guard down. He was really easily found and promptly found the next day where he'd be arrested and charged with assault. His parents would bail him out about a month after his arrest and he'd be sent back to Connecticut for 16 days of psychiatric study. Now, this study in particular would show that he was suffering from psychological problems, but Michael would attribute those to the divorce of his parents. Despite his criminal record, there would be very little consequences for his actions against that police officer. 
it would unfortunately mean that we would lose a further five women because the cost of the police not really taking his crimes too seriously. I'm not saying that they didn't take it seriously at the time, but if they'd maybe looked a little bit more and there'd been some more consequences, this might not have happened. Because two months after the attack on the police officer in June, uh, Deborah Taylor, who was 23, her husband and her would run out of gas or petrol. Now, a fatal mistake would actually happen in this. They'd decide to split up and to search for a gas station. While Deborah was walking uh, along the side of the highway, Michael would snatch her and repeat the violent crimes of raping and strangling. Now, a jogger would find her body four months after she'd been murdered and he would once again evade the police. He's not on the radar at this stage, but he would be very soon and he'd be linked to another murder. Now, he would appear in court around August 1982 for those assault charges against the police officer. Now, he would plead guilty. He would once again be fined. This time it would be $1,000 and he'd serve four months in jail before being released on probation. Now, the court would actually recommend that he should use, he should have better use of his time, start jogging, learning to fly. Now, I'm not sure why the recommendation was there specifically, but it was like to basically say, hey, you need to look outside your box and, you know, make better use of your time, you know, but it did little to deter or curb his violent tendencies. It was, and that really, considering he was already a violent rapist and murderer, this recommendation itself would be futile for what was coming. Now, while he was out on probation, he'd move back to Connecticut and he'd begin working as a door-to-door insurance salesman. Now, he'd lie on his application about his criminal record, so he'd be able to get a job. Now, it would be 18 months between murders, but I think that's more due to Michael being in jail rather than restraint. And also, I think there was a brief period of time where he was living with his parents and it was just, I think it was not necessarily restraint that stopped him I think there were circumstances I did read in one of the articles that there was a series of rapes so perhaps rather than murdering during this time uh, he was raping victims I wasn't able to get too much information now on November 19th Robin Stravinsky who was 19 she would disappear while hitchhiking in Norwich Connecticut her remains would be found a week later another victim of rape and strangulation But once Robin had been discovered, the police working the case, they would start to see similarities between the murders of Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor's. The victims were very similar in stature and looks. They'd been raped and sodomized. They were found face down and they'd all been strangled. Now, the police had suspicions that they were dealing with a serial killer and they were certainly getting very desperate to find this killer and put a name and a face to him. But on April 22nd, 1984, which also happened to be Easter Sunday, Michael would commit his first and only recorded double murder. Two 14-year-old girls who were friends as well as neighbours, April and Leslie. Uh, The girls were doing something I've done at their age, just doing something really ordinary. They were just walking to a friend's house. Uh, They'd just been to the movies. They were popping in to say hello to a friend. He would kidnap the girls while they were en route to this friend's house. When their bodies were discovered, it was found that the girls had been killed in the same manner as the other victims. So two months after April and Leslie's murder, 
Michael would murder his eighth known victim, a 17-year-old by the name of Wendy Barber Butte from Lisbon, Connecticut. Now, she'd be abducted in broad daylight while walking to the local convenience store. She'd be found several days later. The difference this time is that there would be witnesses and these witnesses would say that they noticed a thin white man with glasses driving a blue model Toyota. They also noted that the car did seem to be following Wendy on the day that she went missing. I do apologise, I'm just going to take a take a quick drink. Now, <clears throat> this would lead, this would be the lead that the police department and the investigators had been desperately hoping for. Detective Michael Malchik, he's up on the screen at the moment. Now, he had worked Tammy's murder. He would also be assigned to Wendy's murder. Now, he would begin his investigation with the car the witnesses alleged to have seen. According to an article, the detective would actually print out a list of Toyotas matching the description and he'd have to review 3,600 of them. But the first person that he would visit um, on that list would be Michael Bruce Ross and he would have a really bad feeling about him almost after, almost immediately after meeting him. The detective would actually say it was a roller coaster of a ride, this particular interview. Every time he'd go to leave, he felt like Michael was leaving him a little bit of breadcrumbs and then that would lead to him asking more questions. Now, Michael was your typical narcissistic serial killer. He'd confessed to Wendy's murder because he wanted someone to hear his story. Now, he'd initially confessed to only some of the murders while in custody. So he would confess to April, Leslie, Tammy, Deborah and Robin's murders, a total of six. It would be years and while he was sitting on death row, that he would admit to Paula and Zung's murders. In 1987, <clears throat> he would go on trial for Tammy and Deborah's murders. He would plead guilty and receive a maximum sentence of 120 years. But it would be during the trial of Wendy, April and Leslie and Robin that he would receive the death penalty. During and after his trial, though, he complained and he would be angry as he felt like the judge and the jury were really biased. Now, there are a couple of examples that I am able to find. A reporter by the name of Karen Clark, she would say that the judge, I, um, the judge was named Judge Ford, would act, inappropriate would act inappropriate at times during the trial. He would appear bored and open his mail. She felt like there was a real lack of respect for the defence, which may or may not have swayed the jury. Apparently, the judge also undermined Michael's sister during her testimony, asking her questions and just being really condescending. One of the psychiatrists, he felt like he wasn't treated in a polite and respectful manner. Again, I want to say I don't know if this is true or it did happen, but I've got to tell you, if it did happen, I think it would certainly bias the jury. If you see a judge blatantly disrespecting a defence team and their witnesses, surely there'd be a little bit of, well, if the judge is not willing to hear him, why should I? He's clearly guilty. So I'm just talking from my perspective. If I saw that, I would be a little bit, mm, I think he's guilty. But Michael's biggest pet peeve during the trial, uh, it would be that the court failed to recognise his alleged mental illness. Now, one of the examples 
that's been provided that I do believe carries a little bit of weight. A psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Robert Miller, he asked to be removed from the state's witness list as he felt he could no longer testify that Michael didn't suffer from a mental illness, sexual sadism to be specific, and he felt that the death penalty was no longer warranted. But his letter was never his letter uh, was never heard. This actually outlined why he didn't want to testify. The judge denied the request for it to be read to the jury. Michael would continue to appeal this sentence as well as requesting a new trial. He would also raise complaints. His case and appeals, they'd be taken to the High Court. In 1994, the Connecticut Supreme Court would uphold the murder convictions, but they would overturn the death sentences as they felt that Judge Ford had excluded evidence that may have proved that Michael suffered from a mental illness or defect. A new penalty hearing. So this is like a sentence hearing, um, but there's actually a jury present during this time to determine what the penalty should be. This was ordered, but this would be delayed. But we're going to cover more off on that later in the podcast as to why it was delayed. Now, before we get into his later years in jail and uh, his penalty hearing, I do want to talk about some of his mental illness and his health. Many, 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 many psychiatrists would see him and interview him, and even Michael's own words would lead them would lead them to diagnose him with something called paraphialic paraphialic disorder, which is otherwise known as sexual sadism disorder. Now, this is a mental health related issue in which a person is sexually aroused by inflicting physical or emotional pain on another person and their sexual urges or behaviour causes distress or harm. People with this disorder may participate in activities that put other people at risk of physical harm. I am really just summarising these guys. I'm not giving you what the clinical diagnosis is, rather just an explanation and an overview of what sexual sadism can be. It is a recognised disorder, so I do think to some degree, if he has been diagnosed more than once, regarding this surely you've got to be able to look at it right like surely there's got to be something now it has been suggested that as a child that he was already having these violent thoughts about women he specifically said that he specifically actually said this bring he wanted for women he wanted to bring them to a special underground place hiding them and keeping them to love him now are we really are we really that shocked by this though Some of those experts believe that this behaviour and this violence was due to his mum's treatment, whereas others believe it was a hormonal imbalancement. Now, I've got to say, for me personally, I think it's a combination of both of them. I do think there's a possible hormonal imbalancement in regards to Michael. Um, We will get into that in just a couple of minutes. Um, But I just feel that... There is something mentally not quite right, but there is also a behavioural problem from his mum which possibly caused those tendencies. So I do think that there is a genuine problem. I read an article written by Michael called My Name is Michael Ross. Um, If you guys want to read it, just Google it. It's amazing. It it actually gives you a really good insight. Um, I didn't feel sorry for him or anything like that, but it definitely gave me a lot of insight into who he was. 
because he discusses his violent urges. He even describes it as he was living with an obnoxious roommate. Uh, He would say that he was turned on by sadistic fantasies, but then he would have a feeling followed of self-loathing and disgust. So there is a level of that he does know what he did was wrong. So I don't think you can call yourself incompetent when there is that level of knowing what you're doing is wrong. But he would actually be given an anti-andronin medication that would reduce his testosterone levels to prepubescent. That would lead to a reduction in his violent and sadistic fantasies. Now, the original drug that they give him, that would end up causing liver issues, so he'd be switched to an alternative. But that would allow him to control and monitor and just be less plagued with these sadistic fantasies. But with this renewed purpose of life and a better understanding of who he was, he'd begin to realise the extent of his crimes and what he'd done to his victims and to their families. He would volunteer for execution as he no longer wanted the families to suffer. Now, this would lead to some very mixed reactions um, on both sides of the fence. Uh, And when I refer to that, the prosecution side and the defence's side. Um, But we are going to hear more about that during the time when I talk about the penalty hearing. So Michael, he would end up working with prosecutors to find a way around the penalty hearing as he just wanted to go onto the inevitable. He just wanted to die. But all the efforts from him and the prosecutors, they'd prove to be futile as the penalty hearing would still actually go ahead. Now, the prosecution team would need to prove the existing of aggravating factors for the death penalty to be an option and to be justified. I think I've discussed it on my other podcast, guys, and I'm happy to go through it Um if you want to comment and tell me, hey, Vic, can you just do like a five-minute video on what are the factors behind the death penalty? I think it's on my um, the Henry Lee Lucas, um, not Henry Lee Lucas, sorry, the Henry, <laughs> Henry Lewis Wallace um, one on what those factors would be. Um, so if you do want me to go ahead and go through what are the factors behind the death penalty, just comment below and I will do a five-minute video on that. Um, sorry, got a little bit sidetracked. Uh, the defense, now they claim he was suffering from a mental illness and that makes you ineligible for the death sentence. So both sides did actually put up some really compelling evidence. Now the prosecution, they would present the victim's families, the police had investigated and what they saw and what the victims had gone through. And there would be also the presentation of a BBC interview with Markle where he discussed those murders and how those victims had suffered. Now, we're going to need to remember this interview as it's actually going to come up again really shortly. The defence team's evidence was really interesting. They would present the prison psychiatrist and how the drugs were helping curb his violent tendencies, which would support that the murders were due to a mental illness. His dad and his aunt, they'd also testify asking to spare his life. There would be the prosecution's letter from Dr Miller that I mentioned before that the one that should have been heard at the original trial. One argument that threw me a little was suggesting keeping him alive for a better better use of science. They wanted to study Michael and see if there was a further way to understand serial killers and the sexual sadism disorder itself. I'm not impartial to that. I think it's a good idea to understand why this happens and is there something we can learn from and something we can do better next time so even though it threw me i'm not saying i think it's always a bad thing 
The jury would deliberate for nine days, but they would uphold the decision for the death penalty. Now, if the state got their way, Michael Ross would be the first criminal to be executed in Connecticut in, since 1960. He would also be the last. I find it, uh, I sit on the fence with, death pe- the, with the death penalty, right? I really do. Um, I think that it's required, but I also sit on that other side of, hang on, I think they should endure a time and a suffering for what they've done and they need to understand the gravity of what they've done. But are we keeping them alive for that reason? So, I, I yeah, the death penalty, I sort of, I do sit on the fence with that one. Now we are going to return to that BBC interview now. Michael would say in that interview that he was responsible for two women's unsolved murders in New York. Now one of those women, he would dispose of the body in wall kill. Now, as soon as the police had heard this, they went through the archives and they'd follow up on any unsolved murders. It was here that they would discover the case of Paula Pereira. They would use DNA samples and they'd find a match to Michael. He would be charged with her murder in the fall of the year 2000 and he'd plead guilty and he would be sentenced to a further 8 to 25 years. Now, the second murder would be Zung Gok. Um, so he managed to evade being charged for the rape and murder of her in 1981. Uh, there is a quote that I read from the Tompkins County District Attorney, George Denters, suggested that it was pointless to seek a conviction against Michael in her murder because he's already been sentenced to death in Connecticut. And besides that factor, Zung's family in Vietnam, they had no interest in pursuing the case and they would prefer not to relieve the pain that has torn their family apart. I would love to respect the wishes of the victim's family, so I definitely see why that didn't go ahead. But I don't think just because he'd been already con- Uh, convicted to death in Connecticut should be the reason. I'm hoping that the underlying reason was because her family didn't want to pursue it and not because of the fact that, you know, he'd already been sentenced to death. Now, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled to uphold Michael's previous death sentence in May 2004, despite repeated appeals by his lawyers. The following uh, October, an execution date had been set for January 6th, January 26th, 2005. Now, Michael had decided to discontinue his 18-year-long appeals and instead he did decide to accept his fate. Now, he was about an hour away from becoming the first inmate executed in New England in 45 years uh, when his lethal injection was abruptly put on hold. He'd waived his appeals and he'd accepted his execution, but his former public defenders, along with a death row expert and a former prison official, raised serious doubts about whether he was competent to make such decisions or whether despair over his living conditions on death row had caused him uh, to become mentally unhinged and suffering from something called death row syndrome. He'd attempted suicide three times while in prison and writing after the last attempt of the isolation, he felt sitting in a cell 23 hours a day thinking of his crimes and his impending lethal injection. 
He once admitted that he was seeking his execution largely because a desire to end my own pain. Public defenders would argue that the extreme conditions that he lived in essentially coerced him into dropping all of his appeals. A former deputy warden at the super maximum security Connecticut prison in which uh, he was confined in described the environment as similar to living in a submarine or a cave. And an expert on death row prisoners said such inmates often volunteer for execution. The conditions of confinement are so oppressive and the helplessness endured in the roller coaster of hope and despair are so wrenching and exhausting that ultimately the inmate can no longer bear it and that is and then it is only in dropping his appeals that he has a sense of control over his fate and that would be the death row expert which was Dr. Stuart Gracian, and that he, he wrote that into the court papers. Now, Michael's attorney had been assisting him in his efforts to waive his appeals, but a federal judge was quite concerned about his mental state, that he took the unusual step of threatening to have the lawyer disbarred if he didn't sufficiently investigate the incompetence claims. So the lawyer requested a postponement, and the execution was delayed to permit a court-appointed attorney to investigate and raise issues about his mental health and mental state. Now, ultimately, the courts determined that Ross was competent to be executed, and they certainly did so on May 13th, 2005. Now, I have to say, I think you there would personally be a level of not like that syndrome that they're referring to. I think there would be a level, right? I think there would definitely be a level of 23 hours in a cell. It would, it would just, it, it, it would drive you nuts. So I do understand why they wanted to make sure he was mentally competent, but he chose to forego anything else. He was managed to convince them that he was competent. He smirked at the psychiatrist who said he was suicidal and often seemed exasperated by his inability to reshape his image. Um, He just, he didn't, he wanted to die. Um, It was a decision that required courage. Um, I think it did to a certain aspect um, that he decided he he wanted to put the families out of their misery. Now, he was executed by lethal injection at Osborne Correctional Institution in Connecticut Nine members of the victim's family witnessed his final moments and he chose not to make any final statements. But most importantly now, guys, what I'd really like to talk about um, in ending on that note and saying he died, I want to talk about the victims and what they were like at the end as I want their voices and their stories to be the last thing that we actually talk about on this podcast. I think it needs to be heard, right? I think more than anything. Now, Zung Gok Tu was a 25-year-old student at Cornell University from Vietnam who was excelling in her studies and was known to be very kind. On the night that she was killed, she had been studying at Warren Hall, the same campus where Michael had been working. Her body would be found in a creek at the bottom of a gorge on May 12, 1981, very close to their school, and the gorge was a known spot for people jumping, and that's why Zung's death was initially thought to be a suicide. Her case was cold 
for several years before Michael confessed to her murder during a session with a psychiatrist. And although he was never charged, at least his her family found peace in the fact that they were able to know what had happened to her and who had killed her. 17-year-old Tammy Williams from Brooklyn, Connecticut, was murdered by Michael on January 5th, 1982, after he abducted her on a walk home from her boyfriend's house. Now, her body was found with evidence of sexual assault. Her best, but what I would like to point out is Tammy's best friend said, I can still remember the way she laughed. She had a heart of gold. I still remember her giggle. She was a really fun person to be around. The two girls had gone to school with Michael and used to take shortcuts right by his chicken farm. So I think he actually knew Tammy. 16-year-old Paula Pereira from Wallkill, New York, was not a stranger to hitchhiking and felt like she could trust most people, especially because she lived in a really small and rural area. Now, she was murdered by Michael in 1982 after he picked her up on his way to Connecticut from Cornell, and he had raped her and dumped her body on a side road uh, near Interstate 84, but she wasn't found for 18 days. But Paula's childhood best friend, Barbara, has said that it frustrates her how Paula is usually only mentioned in a footnote when talking about Michael's crimes and said that she was a wonderful person. She was whimsy and a truly innocent person. 23-year-old Deborah Smith-Taylor and her husband were driving near Connecticut, uh, sorry, near Danielson, Connecticut on June 15th, 1982, when they ran out of gas. The two of them split up and went opposite ways in search of a gas station, and this is where Michael kidnapped Deborah. Um, I'm not going to go into her murder. I don't think we need to really go across that, but she has been described as lovely and just a joy in everybody's life. Now, 19-year-old Robin Stavinsky was from Norwich, Connecticut, and she was hitchhiking in 1983, which happened to be uh, Thanksgiving as well, but she never ended up making it to her destination. Now, he would kidnap and drag her into a wooded area just near the state hospital. Um, again, I'm not going to get into her murder. Um, joggers, as we're aware, I've discussed it before, they managed uh, joggers were able to find her body but I will say Robin's murder was the missing puzzle piece for investigators who realized that her murder had matched Deborah's and Tammy's and there was a serial t- serial killer that was targeting young girls so her death at least is not a little bit in vain. Now April and Leslie both 14 year olds from Griswold Connecticut they were walking home um, to a friend's house on Easter Sunday now, he would offer them a ride and kidnap them both, driving par- driving them past their destination that they'd requested. April pulled a knife on him, though, and told Michael to stop the car, but unfortunately he really quickly disarmed her and he kept driving until they, went, they got to Rhode Island. It was there that he would sexually assault April. And thankfully for Leslie, he actually didn't sexually assault her. So I do have at least one thing that says that. I haven't been able to find much other than that girls were a delight to know. Now, 17-year-old Wendy, she was from Griswold, Griswold, Connecticut as well, and she was last seen walking down Highway 12 on her way to the local convenience store. He'd been following her um, 
and he began talking talking to her as soon as he pulled over um and that would lead to her getting his car unfortunately again he raped and strangled her but on the day that she disappeared those witnesses told the police what they'd seen so that was able to you know lead to his capture so I've got to say again at least her death was not in vain and we know that it led to his capture I'm sorry that I couldn't find out more about the victims but I think that it's absolutely imperative that the more I can try and find out about these victims because I think they need to have a voice and I think that more importantly we need to remember who these people were because that is the most important part of these podcasts but thank you all for listening to episode seven now if you like this podcast please hit the like button subscribe and go and listen to all of those other episodes if you are new but have a great weekend my fellow peanuts thanks guys